Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 6 through 10, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1144 and 1149. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Here at Knox, we are in the middle of a series of messages during Advent, and we're focusing in on hope and the premise for this whole series. I guess the key thesis for what we're exploring and unpacking is that um, our present, how we live today, 
is so profoundly shaped by what we believe our future holds for us. We said that the Christian hope of a new heavens and a new earth, of a, of a resurrection, that ultimate future of eternal love and glory of God, that unique Christian hope shapes every area of our lives, all of our life practices, and we're taking time to, to explore different areas of our life. Last week we looked at money, next week we're going to look at sort of our public lives, our work lives, and today we're going to look at a very uh, practical area of our life, the area of suffering and how our hope in Christ shapes how we endure suffering, how we handle, how we walk through and experience it. Because without hope, it, it would be impossible for us to face, to endure suffering. True hope enables us to navigate sorrow, to even find joy amidst the rubble of all of our sorrows. And so I'm going to preach this sermon, but I'm going to do it a little differently. We'll get to the different part a little bit later, very quickly. But I want to first do is a brief introduction, and then we'll get to the different part of today's sermon. Suffering, first of all, we've got to recognize it's one of the most vexing human problems around. Every philosophy, every religion has to provide a coherent, compelling uh, answer, response to why human suffering it's one of the biggest issues for Christianity as well, and for any religion, for any person. Now today we're not going to explore some of those big questions and big dilemmas of why they're suffering and how there can be a reality of suffering in a good, powerful, loving God. Those are important and I'd love to engage with you if you want to do that on a one-on-one -on -one basis after today's message. But that's not the focus for today. Instead today we're going to get very practical on how we can face suffering because of the hope we have in Christ. And there's no greater resource, no, no piece of literature known to mankind that addresses the question of suffering with, with sort of the intellectual clarity, the philosophical integrity, and with, I think, the emotional realism and practical wisdom that Scripture does. And so what I want to do with you today is very quickly um, point out just a few features in this text, and then we'll get into the different part of the sermon. So 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul is, is unpacking uh, looking at suffering. He's doing that out of a context. He, he was addressing a church that was having some problems with the Apostle Paul. They didn't like him as their pastor. I don't know what sort of complaints were going around. Paul, we don't like your preaching. You know, you don't fit our ideal as a, as a pastor. Whatever it was, he was opposed and people uh, were, he was facing this opposition. But he was also facing more intense opposition for his ministry, which now launches him into a consideration of, well, how does that comport with the Christian life? How does suffering and opposition and this life of Christ fit together? That's what he's exploring here. He says, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. So he's facing intense trial, intense suffering, but as you see, there's a buoyancy to him, right? There's a, a resilience, um, even a sense of joy. And you wonder, how do you get that? He says, we do not lose heart. Isn't that the very thing we want? That sort of resilience in the face of suffering, the capacity not to deny the pain at all, but to face it and yet experience within suffering something greater. So what is it? Well, look at that. One other feature I want to talk about is verse 13. Paul quotes a little line. 
it's a strange sort of citation, isn't it? Verse 13. He, he, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Seems like an odd quote. What's he doing there? Well, what he's doing, Paul knows his Bible really well. It would be like this. What he's doing is this. So I'm going to cite a quotation, and you're going to know it, and it's going to bring back a rush of images and thoughts and ideas and a whole story. Here it is. May the force be with you. You know it. All of a sudden, boom, Star Wars comes rushing in, and Death Stars, and Chewbacca, and Han Solo, and the whole gamut, the whole epic story of good and evil comes up, gets conjured up just by that one quote. That's exactly what Paul is doing with that one quote. He's conjuring up, he's calling up Psalm 116. And that psalm is a profoundly powerful psalm. Because in that psalm, it is someone who feels crushed by suffering, who just feels overwhelmed by suffering. And yet, in the midst of it, finds this hope because of the presence of God. And so just with that one reference from Psalm 116, Paul is able to bring that whole theology. And now he's saying, that God of Psalm 116 is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that Jesus has gone down into death and is resurrected into a new life. And it is that upon which we pin all our hopes. And it is that, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, by which we face all our sufferings today. So with that, let me get to the different part of the message today. I, what I want to do is um, talk more personally about suffering because talking about suffering in the abstract, it might be helpful, but there's a limitation to it. It's best if we're able to place a context of our suffering because most of our suffering is very personal. Um, I'm going to read a letter I wrote to my sister. Six years ago, uh, my sister's son, her firstborn, David, was killed in a pretty tragic car crash. He, he was one of these beautiful kids. He was 22 years old when he was, he was killed. He was this vibrant guy, um, just soaked up life. His last Facebook post that he posted before, moment, uh, days before he died was, I want to run, jump, and spread life in this world. That's the type of guy he was. And he was studying at the University of Waterloo. He was uh, writing exams. He was in the engineering program. And as he um, prepared for his exams, he pulled an all-nighter to study for his last exams before Christmas. And uh, he wrote the exam. And as he drove home for Christmas, he fell asleep at the wheel and uh, was killed in a crash. So... Since then, my sister's life, as you can well imagine, has come undone. And sort of our family's life. I think I can count on in the last six years, ten times in which I've actually seen my sister. Because the grief has been too great just to even engage family. Um, so it, it spills over. The effects are wide. Um, and you know this. Because you've experienced suffering in your own way. In your own lives. So, here's a letter to my sister. See, this past Friday, I wrote this letter because this past Friday was the sixth anniversary. So just a couple of days ago. So it's fresh. Dear Karen, I can't believe it's been six years 
since David was killed. It seems way too fresh. All day Friday, I found myself thinking of David and then thinking of that awful day of how your world became unhinged and the tears just quickly came back. I can only imagine the tide of sadness that must undo your heart, especially on this anniversary. You, Rob, and the kids have been close to my heart and prayers throughout the weekend. Six years, six years of such profound sadness, six years of wrestling with God to make sense of this senselessness. This is so hard. Our culture mostly wants to avoid suffering, so there's no help there. We live in this age that's allergic to suffering, and I know you've felt that. Too many people have avoided you because they just didn't know what to do with your pain. And they want to pretend that that suffering you're in doesn't happen. I'm sorry that all of this has only added loneliness to your grief. People in our day are so taken back by suffering. Which makes scripture a good comfort. Because what the Bible offers is that it's never surprised. It's never taken back by suffering. The biblical writers understood that we're all wasting away in some way in this life. And that we just can't avoid pain. And so it offers us real hope for the real pain and suffering we live with. Not the false hope of some of the well-meant platitudes that you've had six years of. I know all those half-truths were offered as a hope of comfort. But never delivered it. It's amazing how the good news of the gospel can get reduced to a trite cliche. A feel-good hallmark slogan that only leaves the giver of it feeling better. I'll do my best to avoid those here, but forgive me if I wander over there. I remember one conversation a few years ago and you were raging against one of those comfortless half-truths. The one that said, God couldn't do anything to prevent this, but he is suffering with you. I remember this visceral anger in you that if the best Christianity could offer was some weak God who could do nothing about David's death, who was helpless to do anything about it, but just suffer with you. That was not a God worthy of your life's devotion. And I admired you and had great hope for you at that moment because you were working your way to something real about God. A path that involves the gospel paradoxes of joy and suffering, life and death. And for six years now, you've been walking that path. You've been dealing with the most difficult challenges of life that every religion and philosophy has to address. And for six years, I've been struggling with what to do. Wishing I could do or be something for you, Rob, and the kids to help mend this, to fix this. But the reality is you need a stronger remedy. I can't know or take on your pain. I can't be Jesus to you. You need Jesus himself. And so six years later, let me do the only thing I can to be a witness to the king who is coming again, Jesus. As you've figured out, Christianity doesn't offer an answer as if an explanation will take away the sting of David's death. As if an argument will be the healing balm for your broken heart. Christianity offers you something better. A person. It gives us God doing something about the pain and suffering of this world in the person of Jesus. 
That's the little trace of comfort. The little, that's the little trace of comfort I have that David died in December. That Christmas so, follows so soon after his dying. Anyone got a Kleenex? I'm going to need that. No Kleenexes in a church. What is this? You are good. Thank you, Ian. I got it. Thanks. Hey, that's all right. <laughs> tears are all right. Church is a place where you bring your joy and your tears. So Christianity offers you something better, a person. That's the trace of comfort I have that David died in December, that Christmas follows so soon after his dying. I know his death has mostly ruined every Christmas celebration for you. But remember, Christmas is less about that first coming of Jesus and more about his coming again. This is a season for people with broken hearts like you, people who know things are not right. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. People, it is a season for people like you who long for something more, people who want so badly for God to finally set everything right again. That's what we remember and celebrate at Christmas. That is our hope that God is doing something about all the misery and pain in this world. So, you've heard it before, let me say it again. Look to Jesus. Look to that baby. Look to that cross. Why did he do this? He came, he suffered everything we ever suffered for you and for me. He endured torment and pain and he didn't tap out of that suffering. Why? It doesn't tell us the reason for suffering. We don't know why God allows all that, but we do know that the reason for that suffering can't be. It can't be that he's not loving. It can't be all your suffering that he's remote and indifferent. It can't be that he doesn't have some good loving reason because he loved us so much that he identified with our suffering. He entered fully into it. The reason God allows suffering and evil isn't because he doesn't care. It isn't that God is indifferent to our pain and suffering. God hasn't forgotten you and is not punishing you for this. Because Jesus was abandoned and forgotten for us. He took our punishment so we don't get punished. He got involved through the cross. So whatever reasons for all that is wrong in this life... God said he will stop it. And to show us that he's not uncaring, that he's involved, we have Jesus. And if God has suffered, he is with you in your suffering. But the truth is you need more than that. Well, this is good and consoling to know God cares enough, loves enough to understand, to enter our suffering. It's good, we need more. To endure the pain of this world, we need something stronger. If God is going to give you what you need to make it through this life that includes tears and pain and grief, then you and me need to also know that God's covenant love is so steady and so powerful that suffering and death lose their poisonous sting because of Jesus. A love that is bigger than our deepest sorrow, that can engulf our pain and sorrow into something grander. The moments where I have seen in you flickers of life again. 
has been when that brighter hope emerges. I've seen you stop for a moment and all that internal wrestling ceases and a quietness washes over you. It's the confidence of that future settles in. And so let me be a witness to that hope again. The strong healing balm is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is such strong medicine that it led different Bible writers to talk about our sufferings as light and momentary. And I am so hesitant to use language like that because it so easily gets cheapened. It almost feels like it diminishes or downplays the reality of our grief and pain. But in the end, the remedy of hope The way hope works is that it gives you a new vantage point on your pain. It gives you a new perspective on what you have suffered, giving you something deeper, something greater than the grief that now seems to define your living. And from that vantage point, amazingly enough, our troubles can possibly seem light and momentary. Without diminishing the reality of what we suffer one bit, without denying it, the gospel engulfs our pain. It takes it up into a bigger reality that surpasses all our calculations. That reality is the resurrection of Jesus and the certain hope of David's resurrection too and our life together with him in God's coming kingdom. Jesus' body that suffered, that was bloodied and pierced, that body was resurrected, physically restored, and made new. And it is a sign right now of what waits for David and for you and for me. And the living hope you and I have, the reality that gives us such strength to make it through all that we suffer, is that God is working out this remarkable restoration of all things of which the resurrection of Jesus is just the first fruits. And what God is up to is not preparing some vague, spiritual, ethereal, non-physical compensation for this life. That's no real hope. Because you want to hold the body of that baby you cradled. You want to embrace the son that you raised. The gospel hope of the resurrection is not a vague, spiritual compensation for all that you've lost in David like that wedding that you'll never see, the grandchildren that will never be. The hope of the resurrection is the restoration of everything you've lost in this life. The bodily resurrection of Jesus means this world. It means David's body. It means your body restored, purified. This means that every horrible thing that has ever happened will be undone. It means everything said, everything horrible is going to be brought up into God's glory. And that's the ultimate defeat of suffering and death. Karen, you get back all the things you've lost. Do you remember that story about Jerry, Joni Erickson Tada? After her diving accident, paralyzed from the neck down, confined to her wheelchair when she was in church. And, and everyone in church was asked to kneel in a worship service. And it just drove home the fact that she couldn't kneel. But it was the resurrection that saved her. One day, as they were called to kneel and pray again, this time she prayed the prayer. And it was about the resurrection. I think I've mentioned this to you, but I remember what she wrote. She wrote, suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrection legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees 
and kneel quietly before the face of Jesus. And then I'm going to get on my feet and I'm going to dance. And then she adds, can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who's spinal cord injured like me? Can you imagine the hope that this gives to someone who's manic depressive? No religion, no other philosophy other than the biblical faith promises us new bodies. And not just new bodies, new minds and new hearts. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live. The resurrection of Jesus is the strong remedy for your deepest grief and sorrow because it means you are not a pioneer in the darkness of death and sorrow. Jesus has gone before you and David into that territory. Jesus takes on the anguish and terror of this life, including death, in order to exhaust it of its power. The horror of death is drained of its finality because of God's voluntary, unrelenting, faithful, covenant love that we see in Jesus. One of the places that you see that so well is in the story that David loved so much, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I'm sure you know, Karen, that Tolkien suffered a very sad life. He lost both parents by age 12. All of his best friends but one died in World War I. And one of the ways he made sense of this suffering was to write stories. The stories weren't on the surface Christian stories, but they were drenched with this deep Christian hope. A hope that Tolkien called a hope beyond the walls of the world. A hope so deep and so great that it can sweeten a world in which everything wastes away. There's no remedy within the walls of the world for this wasting away life. But Tolkien understands something more. And if you know how to read his stories, you see the hope everywhere. And there's one passage where it's just profound. Near the end of the Lord of the Rings, he writes... And all of the host laughed and wept. And in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold and all men were hushed. And he sang to them until their hearts wounded with sweet words overflowed and their joy was like swords and they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together and tears are the very wine of blessedness. I find that so remarkable, Karen. Not denying our pain, but taking it up into something bigger, greater, where tears are the very wine of blessedness. He's talking about this hope for when Christ comes again to restore all that has been lost, including David, in all his goodness and glory and your pain of losing David and your delight at reuniting with him again. All will flow together as part of this incredible divine life. When Jesus comes, the whole world, every part of creation, everything bent, broken, and bruised will participate in that glory of God. And we will be changed into the likeness of God. And the whole creation that David eagerly explored and loved will be renewed in every way with Jesus at the center of it all. That future is so unimaginably good, it's hard to take it in. And so I can't urge you enough. Fix your eyes on this. 
meditate on it and let the glory of it hit you until it crushes your despair and discouragement. I love how C.S. Lewis captured this hope and how we live with this hope now. He writes, at present we are on the outside of the world. We're on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We see the morning star, we see the glory of the sun, but we cannot mingle with the splendors we see. And yet all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. That is the end of the story we are in, Karen. That is the story you and I and David are a part of. It's a story bigger than David's death, bigger than any of our deaths. A story in which David's death is a meaningful part of. A story that will even eventually redefine his death for you and for me. And it's centered in Jesus. He is the one connecting right now and that future hope. Now and all that we yet hope for. And so I stand with you on this side of the world. Keeping hope alive for the glory and splendor of that day. Of a new world that we will yet participate in. I will keep standing with you on the wrong side of the door. Lamenting with you about not knowing why God permitted this to happen, and yet listening for the hope that rustles through the story of Scripture, standing with you to confess the core truth of this good story, that I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul, and in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is bigger than all the darkness of our days, And his grace is sufficient for all the calamities that press in. Amen. Join me in prayer.